Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mai, pediatric speech-language pathologist. And I'm Kate Hensler, developmental interventionist. How are you doing today, Laura? I'm trying to suppress a cough at the moment. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing well. I'm trying to suppress a laugh. My daughter's sitting across from me, smiling at me because I'm doing the show. (laughs) Oh, well, this could be interesting. What? I said, this could be interesting. We're both a little out of pocket then from our normal uh, show routine. I'm not at the office doing the show either, so we'll just see how today goes. Maybe we won't be too loosey-goosey for our listeners. Uh, What shall we start with today? How about sports? Both of our teams are no longer in. The The mighty Hoosiers (laughs) took a a powder. Lost to Syracuse, oh. who is in the final four, so at least that means, you know, we lost to a good team. But we do have yeah. a local team in. Louisville is in the final four, and my husband's on the modern Michigan is in the final four, so we still have two teams we're supporting. Not as uh, fervently as I supported the Hoosiers, but hey, I'm happy. There you go, and I think we have lots of friends who love the Cardinals, so go there Cards. Go. And they're good. And they might well yesterday. take it the whole. They might win at the big dance, huh? I think they'll win. I think they could go all the way. They have a great team. And oh, that that poor guy yesterday. Kevin oh, Rio, that, that broken leg. Awful. That was horrible. Poor guy. Just horrible. I know. So our prayers are certainly with him. And we'll just end our basketball talk. That might be it for this year. We may not say anything else until about sports until. Next, Next basketball fall. season. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not, not so much football going on around here too seriously anyway, so yeah, we might like have to SEC. wait until Hmm? Yeah, I was just gonna say I like SEC football, but and I'm from, you know, this deep south where football reigns. Right. But there's just something about living in Kentucky that makes you an avid basketball fan. So this the sports segment of the show may be done until next fall. And again, I know we're gonna have some listeners that are happy about that. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, like you said, kinda hard not to be a basketball fan when you've got Indiana, uh, Kentucky and U of L all right in your territory, so the golden triangle of college basketball. Yeah. Yeah. And, all right, moving right along, I wanted to say, I don't think I mentioned this last time we had a show. We were off last week because I had mom commitments. It was Macy's the end of the year cheer banquet, and Johnny and I did the slideshow for that, which was a great production, by the way. Um, Good. And so we were getting all of that ready. And I don't think I mentioned that the week before, I had gotten notified that TeachMeToTalk.com is an official ASHA CEU provider. Did we talk about that on the show? I want to say it was mentioned, but I don't know that we said much about it. I don't know if we talked about it or not, but I I wanted to talk about what that means. Now, for some of you who are parents, you're thinking, you know, let me just run do something else while she's talking about this because this has no bearing to me whatsoever. But for speech pathologists who are listening, being an American Speech and Hearing Association continuing education approved provider is a big deal. It's a long process. It's expensive. It's just I've worked on it for a long time. I do think we've talked about that now that I'm saying all this out loud again, or maybe that was just our private conversation. But anyway, what this means is that we'll be able to get our conferences on DVD for ASHA CEUs, and what that means for people who who live to places that I will probably never go is that you'll get to have access to the conference. Not all, even weekly, still get an email. When's your you know next conference schedule out? Why why don't you ever come to California? When are you going to come to the Philippines? Uh, <laughs> I never have seen that you've offered any courses in you know whatever. Rhode Island, you know, whatever state, a state that I have no connections to and probably would never get to. So that's the great thing is that later in the year, 
um, conferences or, or DVDs of conferences will be available. And then I'm also working on some new ones and some expanded sections from the old ones. So I think it's a really exciting opportunity, and it's um, – I didn't know if I had really mentioned it or not. Sometimes I should go back and maybe listen to the previous show, but then that would that would probably take me in a whole direction that I may not even want to go. So never mind. I am just blooding on. Just mention it again. But it was a huge deal. I do remember. I see. I but like you said, I sometimes can't remember if we said it on this show or we just said it to one yep. another privately. But I know it took a long, 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 long time to make it happen, and you were thrilled that yep. you got it done. And it will be great for all those people who want the training but can't necessarily make it to where you are and you're not going to make it to where they are so they can right. and how will it work Laura do you are, have you even made it through that far to figure that out will it be well there will be some different options we know at okay. the beginning we'll have a DVD so they can get the DVD and then there will be a way for them to complete uh, watching the course and then send back the continuing education materials and then there's also another option for it all to be online so that they're even watching the video online. And that is part of what will take several months probably to work out with how those details will be handled, whether it will be, uh, which way it will be. But it will be great for groups because I know lots of times I get invitations to speak to agencies or, you know, school districts or what early intervention programs, and there's just no way that with travel and all the things that go into that that I could ever work those things out. So now groups will be able to get that, especially if they're providing um, continuing education to their, their employees and not really funding for everyone to go do their own thing. This will be a way for them to still keep it in-house and still have a quality ESHA approved <coughs> excuse me, opportunity that is relevant to uh, especially providers for early intervention services. Because sometimes with speech pathologists, we get stuck going to courses because they're closed or easy to get into or, you know, whatever reason, we sometimes will do continuing education opportunities that really don't have any relevance to our daily jobs. And I hate that. And for all those years that I would sit there and go to those conferences for school-age speech language pathologists and think, how can I make this work with a two-year-old? A lot of times the answer is you can't make it work with a two-year-old. You shouldn't try to make that work with a two-year-old. And this has no absolute uh, impact on what you're going to do next week when you see your caseload. So I think this is a great opportunity, and I'm really, really excited about it. And people have asked me about it for a long, long time, so I'm happy that that has finally come true, and I got my written notification of all that today. So that's, again, why it's a little fresh on my mind with wanting to know that today. So, yeah, it was a big deal, and I'm really, really happy about it. So, yay. Okay, moving right along. Uh, last week, I posted a new article on teachmetotalk.com, and I don't always get to write as often as I want to, but I wrote a response to someone about teaching body parts in an email, and I thought, you know, <laughs> this should really be an article on the website. So revised it a little bit and slapped it on there, so I wanted to mention that in case anyone uh, needs that information. But it's just some tricks about teaching body parts and certainly um, understanding body parts and being able to point to those when a mom says, you know, where's your nose or show me your eyes. That's a skill or something that all parents are generally aware that children need to know. But with babies and toddlers with language delays, sometimes we really screw that up when we try to teach it. And so there are some tricks that you can use. And I talk about that, or we've talked about it before, I think, on the show, but wanted to spell it out in black and white. I've never really written about it on the website, so I wanted to mention that. That article is on there, brand spanking new, last week. Okay, there's some other links that I posted in the last week or two since we've had a show that I wanted to point out as well because I think there's some great information and certainly some things that um, reinforce general philosophies and concepts that we discuss on the show every week 
And one of those is an article I posted last week or reposted from, I think it was in the Huffington Post, but it was when feeding therapy becomes aversion therapy. And it was a great read. Kate, I don't know. I didn't send that to you. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at that or that may not even be something you would even remotely be interested in reading about since you don't do tons of I'm not sure I really get what exactly it is. When when it becomes a negative thing? Yes. And they're saying okay. that when you use behavioral approaches, especially to treat feeding, you might end up making the feeding problem worse right. than when it began. And so we all have heard those horror stories of children, and they mentioned this in the article, too, of like kids who are pulling up to their therapist's office for outpatient feeding therapy, and they vomit in the parking lot, you know, because they're so... <laughs> the mere thought of going in, huh? <laughs> Right, right. And so, again, it really just reinforces, particularly with really young children, that a behavioral approach where you're really focused on you must do this at all costs and, th- and treating the feeding difficulty from that this child is choosing not to eat rather than there's something else that's causing the child not to be able to eat, whether it's a sensory issue or, an, excuse me, an oral motor issue or whatever, that doing the whole we're going to throw down the gauntlet here and you're going to eat it, period, is not going to be the way to go with young children. And I just like it so much. I don't do feeding therapy anymore. I haven't done it in a long time, especially when I decided that I wanted to be a language person and really focus all of my energies on that. I just And we have great feeding therapists in our area, so it's easy just to say, call so-and-so. You know, that's her thing. And then uh, feeding therapy, when that's a child's primary issue in a long, long, long time. But I really like the message of this article and and the line that got me the most is something we talk about with language and speech therapy and developmental therapy too a mom in, in quoted in the article says in this case bad therapy is worse than no therapy at all and I, I, right. I think that can be so true I wanted to point that out and it's written by a doctor oh um, you see and so it's just a good read if anybody wants to take a look at that. And I think it's important for parents to read, too. And so many of our little, little clients that we work with, feeding issues are kind of a, a one of the things that they're working through. Sometimes it's a child's only issue, but for lots of our little guys, uh, feeding difficulties kind of go along with their overall developmental issues. So I wanted to mention mention that resource and mention that article. Food chaining is, I think, the very best therapy approach for those kinds of kids. And again, if we don't really have time to talk about a lot of that today. but the, So Google food chaining. And I think those uh, SLPs are, are the way to go with a particular treatment approach for feeding. So there you go. Do you want to talk about that anymore, Kate? Or do you want to move right along? Well, not really, except to say, yeah, um, feeding is not anything that I really ever even pretend to address. And, um, hey, I'll pretend to address a lot of things, but not feeding. (laughs) No, seriously, you know, and I've said this to a lot of moms over the years, it does seem like for some of our, for a certain percentage of our population that we serve, those feeding issues can be, the last thing to come along. You know, they can be really, really, really difficult to address effectively. And, um, you know, I guess it's kind of understandable. So many kids, young children have food issues, eating issues, even typically developing kids do. And so it's just that to the extreme. But, you know, I've had a lot of kids who they've really made a lot of progress in cognitive and play and communication and and they're still eating their five things and nothing else you know that that can be a hard fix so my hat's off to those therapists who devote themselves to it and those are probably the ones you need to work with because because <laughs> it's that's not what easy. I think. Mm-hmm. that's exactly what i think and i know a lot of speech pathologists 
um, have to work in situations where you have to be, you know, a jack of all trades and really treat everything. And if you are in that situation, if you are looking for really sound treatment strategies and someone that you can follow and learn from, even from afar, Google the feed chain people. They've got some books. I know they travel all over. They still work in their hospital setting, but you can find them if you want to. If you want to go to a conference, I think that they are. Again, they they still speak pretty regularly, and you may have to travel. Um, but if you're not going, in lieu of doing that, they do have some, from what I understand, some pretty good books and DVDs that you could look at too. So I wanted to mention that and give them a plug. And again, you know, I don't know them from. They they don't know me. I don't know them, but I like their approach and how it's gradual and it's based on a child's uh, responses and it's not black and white for every single kid. They certainly take into account what a kid already likes and use that as your launching point. Um, so I think it's I think it's a great, great, great approach. All right, that's that. The next article, this, I was going to say the third, but I think it's the second one that I wanted to point out or the second link um, that I put on TeachMeToTalk.com's Facebook page, and I think I did this on Twitter too. It's a picture that came from the Mother's Magazine is the name of that publication, but it floated around Facebook, and it's this picture of this baby who is just crying his little heart out. But the caption is so true. It says, babies cry to communicate, not manipulate. And I think that's a huge, 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 huge message that we certainly talk about all the time, that it's not, babies do not, and and toddlers too, especially those with developmental delays, do not have the cognition to be able to purposefully manipulate you or push your buttons or cause you any kind of grief. They don't lie in their little cribs and say, how can I make this woman's life miserable when I see her today? And a lot of moms get caught up in that and get caught up in, you know, or, or they'll they'll say to their friend, you know, uh, I'll read a mom board and a mom will be complaining about something and then another mom will come on and say, he's just playing you. He doesn't really, you know, he's just crying all day to get on your nerves or whatever, whatever the issue is. And I, I just, oh, I hate that because they're giving those babies way too much credit for being able to purposefully set out to do something that's cunning and conniving. And, you know, they they don't have the ability to plot and scheme. Their little brains are not like that. When they are crying, there's a a physical need (laughs) that usually needs to be met. And so I just think that message is one that we can never get tired of sharing. And, And we need to, as speech pathologists and early interventionists, constantly be on the lookout to correct that myth so that when a mom is saying to us, you know, he's just playing you, he's just being stubborn, he's just whatever adjective she has in there, we need to address that and say, really, your child doesn't have the ability to be able to do that. So let's look at what other things could be going on in a different way to frame this behavior and address it so that we are not making it about He's just trying to get on my last nerve here today Um, because I do think moms can fall into that. And I remember sort of feeling that way sometimes as a new frazzled mommy, (laughs) hormone-induced mommy. Boy, I can relate to the hormone part even now. (laughs) But we have to really address those kinds of things. Don't you hear moms sometimes fall into that? Or other? what what breaks my heart is when the therapist says it. Right. About a kid. Yeah, I mean, it, but it is, and I can see why they, because it does feel that way sometimes that you're just, you know, you're just making my life intentionally making me miserable or so demanding that I couldn't possibly meet, keep you happy or whatever, but, yeah. But they don't have the ability to do that. They can't, young children don't rationalize and reason and they're not able to think 
that way yet. Now your teenagers, oh yeah, but not <laughs> your eighteen-month-olds. <laughs> so it's just an important message. A lot of people liked that post. On fifty-eight people liked that post on uh, TeachMeToTalk.com's Facebook page, and seventeen people shared it. And then one psychologist. Um, a local psychologist liked it and said this is one of the most important things to know about your baby, so I was happy to kind of retouch base with her. But it is important information. And, again, the take-home message for us as therapists is, one, don't ever say that to a parent. Two, if you find yourself, don't ever say, you know, he's just doing that to manipulate you or he's playing you or whatever. Don't be guilty of perpetuating that myth. Number two, if you hear a mom feeling that way or saying it, be sure to correct it. And, again, a loving, gentle, responsive way so that she gets the intent and she understands why you're telling her that she's wrong. Um, and I had a third point there. Oh, yeah, be sure to model that in sessions, too, that when you feel yourself getting irritated or annoyed or a situation arises that you you know that someone less knowledgeable than you might blame a kid's behavior on that sort of thing. Be sure that you're modeling how to address it and, again, that you're not giving up that opportunity to really educate that mom and dad so that they or nanny or grandmother or whoever so that they understand that really young children and especially toddlers, you know, even toddlers, toddlers, two-year-olds, and people will hear, you know, two-year-olds and say, oh, it's just a terrible tooth, whatever. You, you can't pass up an opportunity to really educate caregivers with what's um, going on with the child and that they're developmentally not capable of manipulating you or um, using beha- whatever behavior is going on. They're not doing that just to get a rise out of you. There's a real need there, and we need to uncover it and figure out how to use that, and then move on. All right. Anything else you want to say about that one? No, I'm good. All righty. The next link that I put on there is my very favorite book for working with young children with Down syndrome, and I posted it on World Down Syndrome Day, which was March 21st, and it's by Libby Cuman. And, again, even though we don't – treat by diagnosis and we don't say, you know, these are the only, these treatment strategies, I only use these with kids with Down syndrome. You know, that is not true. We, we talk about that a lot. We do not treat by diagnosis. However, this is a great book with some very uh, sound treatment recommendations and it certainly is a great read for parents, too, who are looking for resources uh, when they have a baby who happens to have Down syndrome. So I wanted to mention that link is on there as well. And then lastly, uh, and I think we might have talked about this, there's a CDC article that came out a couple of different a couple of weeks ago that has the new statistic that one in 50 school-aged children has an autism spectrum um, disorder diagnosis which is a huge, huge number, but I wanted to mention that and, and point um, listeners to that article so that they may share it with parents or share it on their own pages. Since April is Autism Awareness Month, and tomorrow is World Autism Awareness Day. So I wanted to tie that in and mention that as well. Did we talk about that on the show, or did you and I? I think we mentioned that, too. Yeah, we mentioned that number because we were saying, whoa, that's unbelievably high. Yeah, it is, and there's some. I do believe it, but it's just, ooh, 150 school age. That's a lot. And what that really means, I think we did talk about it because I now remember sharing that personal story that I won't share again. But I did want to point people to that article because I think it's uh, a good Reference and it certainly to me it means you can hardly be an adult in the United States then without knowing a family who's been affected by autism and I hope that that really destigmatizes parents who don't want to get a label or who don't want to get treatment for their child and there's obviously a developmental issue going on so 
wanted to mention that again. Gosh, you don't do the show for a week like we skipped last week, and I can't remember what I said or what I didn't say, so I apologize if some of that was repetitive. But oh well. Well, it might be easier for me. I'm more of the listening bird, so you say it and I listen. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we did mention it. Well. Honestly, after all these years of doing the show, sometimes almost everything we say, I feel like. I know. Eventually you have to get around to saying pretty much everything. But that is a new one that I've seen it in the media a lot about the 1 in 50, 1 in 50, 1 in 50. And I think, yeah, I believe that. I mean, because because that's what seems to reflect reality of the kids I see. And then, then, you know, as we've talked about again – as we talk about everything eventually, there are certainly kids that we see early, you know, before they turn three that may not ever have, for whatever reason, maybe their their symptoms are so relatively mild for that age or whatever. There are any number of circumstances that might dictate you don't even have that conversation with the parents. But ultimately, when that child is six or seven or eight or nine, the school psychologist di- diagnoses them or they go to a specialist, you know. So there are certainly kids that we see that we suspect may have a diagnosis in their future, but for whatever reason are not candidates now. So it doesn't really surprise yeah. me. And then the flip side of that is that there are children who certainly should be on someone's early intervention caseload. Right. Who, for whatever reason, the doctor doesn't recognize it, doesn't point parents, Toward early intervention, mom and dad are thinking he's still a baby, he's a boy, he's going to be a late bloomer, or, you know, we have a history of late talking in our family, let's just kind of see how it goes. There are so many children who don't get that diagnosis until after an early interventionist would see them. And so, um, or again, they may not hit their little walls until their school age, like you just talked about. They may parents may not even have suspected, or or maybe they suspected something, but they never thought it was serious enough to warrant a diagnosis. You know, they just thought, oh, he's quirky, or she's like Aunt So and So, or whatever. So they don't really pursue services. So there are all kinds of things that can happen. And, I do know there are certain parts of the country where autism is overdiagnosed, and that is a problem. And I do I hate it when a child is misidentified, but he still is likely getting services then because somebody is aware enough to think, "Hey, hey, there's a problem here. <laughs> we need some help." Mm-hmm. So, underdiagnosis versus overdiagnosis. You know, we're going to err on the side of getting kids the help that they that they need. So there we go. I think we did talk about that before, so moving right along. Okay, let's get to our topic of the day. And this is something that we have talked about before on the show. It was the topic of our show way back in June of 2010. I have not, I I fully intended to go back and listen to that show, and I've already already kind of said today, sometimes that makes me uncomfortable, so I always go back and listen to those previous shows because nobody likes criticizing themselves, and I have a tendency to do that when I listen to those older things, so there you go. Uh, But this show or this question uh, has come up from time to time, and I know that we certainly have talked about it even in context of other questions. So this is about jargon, and for those of you who are not speech pathologists or therapists, jargon is when a child uses those long strings of unintelligible sounds and I, I can never, um, I can't really do a good, give a good model for imitation or for a, a good model for a little bit of jargon. Can you do Nor that? Nor can I, and I usually try not to try because it's just really hard to come up with something that sounds so. It's, it's that the the uh, thing that kids do when their parents oftentimes say it's like he's speaking Chinese, and I think they say that because, or Japanese or whatever, because German it, or whatever. Yeah, it yeah. does sound like they're using words in a way because it's so emphatic. You know, it's just kind of dot, 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 dot. And they, but they're long, and you look at their faces and you think, I know she's trying to say something, you know, right. and they are. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So. And there are some cute examples on YouTube. There's an example that I show in the conference of a little girl who's probably 16, 17, 18 months old who's doing jargon. So if you're bored and really want to hear a great example of that, Google that, Google jargon, or, or you, do it on YouTube and listen to that. And so jargon is a part of typical language development, but not all kids do it. And I know we've talked about this before. My boys, I have three children who are now you know, 23, uh, 21, and 16, and our boys did not do much jargon at all. But our daughter, oh, my gosh, drove me crazy with all the jargon that she used. And, you know, that's what you get for having a speech pathologist as a mother who overanalyzes every single thing that you do. Uh, but not all kids do it. I think you've said before when we've had this conversation that your daughters did not, right? No, they really didn't. Mm-mm. Yeah. Nope. And so my niece did you know, a lot. but Did my, she? My, yes, my niece did a lot. But my kids really didn't. Yeah, and so if you are a speech pathologist and one of your own children hasn't done that, you may not have had much experience with that, you know, with a typically developing kid doing that. Or if if you are and your typically developing kids used a lot of jargon, you may think that every kid does, and that's not necessarily true either. So I want to just kind of get that out there. That falls into the wide range of normal you know not every kid has done it so sometimes I know therapists really have written me emailed me and said oh my gosh I'd never really heard that before what the heck am I supposed to do and so again just kind of wanted to mention that, that we hear it that we hear it or we don't hear it and again pretty pretty wide range there with uh, in typical development when we do hear it when children are um, learning language is usually when they're trying to make that jump from using single words to phrases. And so usually around that 15 to 18 month time frame, and if you'll look it up in our um, milestones list or on an assessment, that's when you'll see it. I have seen some other internet references that say that jargon is jargon is at its peak uh, between 24 months and 30 months, and I, I don't buy that, and I don't believe that. And so that's something that you would really kind of want to check the source. And I tried to track some of those down today too, but I, I couldn't really find for anybody reference that other than a mom, you know, who just might be answering the question on a board. When we hear it in our kids in our kids with language delays, it usually, well, it can mean a lot of different things, and that's what leads us to our question today. This is from a speech artist, and she says, why are you laughing? Oh, I'm taking forever to get yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to find a sheet of paper for the question, okay? We're okay. Calling this. All right, here we go. She says, I attended your conference in September, Found it informational. Here we go. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Let's get to the, the the chase here. She says, I currently work in early intervention, and I have a question regarding jargon. I see a child who will be turning three in June, and she's progressing well with her language. She's asking and answering questions. She's using simple four- to five-word phrases and sentences. And see, I would read that right there and go, oh, my gosh, she's doing great. Is that what you right. thought when you read it? Yes. yes. And she says she's talking spontaneously and consistently, but her parents continue to report that they see some jargon. What are your thoughts regarding the typical age jargon should be eliminated? And that's why I just mentioned that reference about sometimes on the Internet you'll see that it, you'll see authors or people who are writing, you know, who knows who they really are, and say that between 24 and 30 months, and again, I cannot find any professional reference that talks about jargon persisting past about the 18 to 21 month level. Is jargon on the test that you use, Kate, on your assessment? Do you remember? Um, I don't know that they say jargon, but yeah. they say like um, 
adult-like, long babbling with adult-like intonation, which I've always kind yes. of thought they mean Interpreted jargon. Interpreted as jargon, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's what the Rosetti says, the Rosetti Infant Toddler Language Scale, which is the test that I use all the time. And it listed at 18 to 21 months. And we know when it's on a, on an assessment, it's usually listed later than we, we would expect to see it come in in children with typical development. So if we see it on a test at 18 to 21 months, that means that 90% of all the children that they use to standardize the assessment, or if it's a criterion reference assessment like this one, 90% of the sources that they consulted and were putting together their milestones or 90% of the children of the resources, you know what I mean. That's when it's on a test. So 18 to 21 months would be that, that last age range that we would think about um, it kind of coming in or first starting um, to appear. So... In typical development, I do think it's more likely in that 12 to 18 month range that we would we would start to hear that. So that automatically makes you kind of question when you have a little girl who's about to be three and is still doing that, and her therapist is saying, "Do you think this is typical for her?" Um, or, or you know, what would you think about this? And just for her to take the time to email me about this. You know, already you know, well, something's up if she doesn't have, you know, this is outside the norm of children that she would see. So automatically, again, I would tell her, no, that's that's not something that she would even expect to see in children with speech-language delays. For her to be doing so well with everything else and still have some jargon, that's not something I would necessarily expect to hear. And you concur with that as well, right? I would, yeah. I was kind of looking at the uh, help assessment, and I was wrong. It does actually name it uses elaborate jargon. Twenty two to twenty four months. Well, there you when go. they have it. Mm-hmm. So you have it a little bit later than my test. So by uh-huh. twenty four months is when we would have it on there. So that she's turning three in the next couple of months, we would be a little bit concerned about that. The other thing is. When we see jargon come in in typical development, and I've already talked about this, it's when children are trying to go from just primarily using single words to that phrase level. So she's this little girl is well beyond that because she's using some sentences at four to five words. So, again, it's a little unusual that she would still be using jargon there. So I asked the therapist to talk to parents about when they hear the jargon and then talked about a few different scenarios that I think could be going on with her. Again, this is just based on my personal experience with with all the kids I've seen over the years. Anytime a kid is using jargon, they are essentially telling you, hey, I know how to talk, but I need some vocabulary here. I know I'm supposed to communicate with you, but I don't have the specific words that I need. I know, again, how to put sounds together to make sound like I'm really having a conversation with you, but I cannot fit it all together. A lot of times parents will say, boy, she knows what she wants to say, but her brain is moving faster than her little mouth can get those words out. And that is what it sounds like when kids are doing that, don't you think? Right. Like they know they're supposed to be talking. You know, they're right. trying to talk. I know. Mm-hmm. I know. And so anytime we hear jargon, we automatically know there's a gap in what this kid wants to do versus what she can really do. So that always tells us she's either about, to, she's trying to make that, that next big leap of progress or, man, I've got to work really hard on vocabulary development here or, you know, whatever the underlying issue might be because bottom line, she needs the words. She needs some new vocabulary. So what I always recommend to parents when they're hearing this is if you can model what the child should say or is trying to say if you can figure it out. And, again, sometimes that's easier said than done because sometimes they're just looking at you and they are telling you all about something and you have no earthly idea what that might be. And so if you can figure it out, you want to recast it or 
again, use if for this little girl who's using some sentences, I would just start to use some really short sentences and have her imitate those so that she, again, is getting the help with vocabulary that she needs with that. So that being said, even though all these other scenarios that we're going to talk about, that's the bottom line. Anytime you hear jargon, you need some help with vocabulary development because they're trying to talk, but they don't, they don't have the words to say there. Sometimes jargon, again, tries to or emerges not only when a child is going from single words to phrases, but I've seen it a lot when kids start to realize that they can talk in paragraphs, and that's when my daughter did it a lot too. She wanted to hold my attention, and then she would just start kind of, blah, blah, blah. and then with those kids, that's when you'll hear real words kind of emerge at the end, or they might start out with a real word or two and then lapse into their jargon. And that's how I always kind of know, too, that that's a more typical use of jargon, and that's just where the kid is in their expressive language development versus the next couple of scenarios that we're going to talk about with jargon. So if we're hearing some real words mixed in there, that's a more normal, typical use of jargon. And you've had that with kids on your caseload, right, Kate? They're they're telling you something and then you'll hear ball. Bye bye. Right, yeah. That yeah. that 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 ball. That 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 and you know they said yeah. ball, but the rest you don't know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that I and hear so on you, a fair amount. I mean fairly regular basis. And I think that is a more when we hear a kid using jargon in that context, that's when again we'll we think this is just where she is and just her phase of language development, and she's getting there. She's trying, and so that would be how jargon that we characterize as more typical versus this, these atypical ways that kids can use jargon. And let me talk about one other way that might be more typical, too. Sometimes kids will use jargon as a way to sort of amuse themselves like if they're in a crib, and this would be a younger baby. Some parents would call it babbling or whatever. They're just practicing. They know they have a little voice. They can make some noise. Some kids will do that kind of thing in the car. And when you have kids like this, then when they start to get real words, they may do their jargon stuff, and then you'll hear a word they just learned. And like you just said, they may blah, 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 you know, and then insert dog or blah, 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 mama, you know, and again, you're going to hear that kind of practicing as they are using their little voices. And sometimes a parent will tell me about that for a kid that's been freakishly quiet, and I get really excited about that kind of kid or when that starts happening with that phase because I think, gosh, he's learning it. He's he's knowing he has a voice. He's, he's using it. And then they just have to kind of catch up with that practice. So we will hear that from parents of children that we're seeing. And, again, I think it's that whole I've got to catch up with all this vocal play that I've not yet done. So sometimes we hear that. Have you had that happen with kids too? Yes, I have. And it is those kids who um, are a lot of times very, very quiet. And I always say, (coughs) excuse me, he has found his voice. Right. And it is like yeah. they just discovered, and sometimes they're two, 28 months, 30 months, you know, long right. past when most kids know they have a voice. But they are also the kids that mom says, nope, he never really babbled. He never really made it. He was a very easy, quiet, happy baby. And here they are, and they find, and that's always a good sign. Always a good sign in that situation. And mm-hmm. I always listen for parents to tell me that and sometimes it'll kind of take a surprise because I'll think gosh he's not really talking that much in sessions yet but I know it's coming because he's doing that vocal play part at home or sometimes a parent will tell me that after after they've been doing pretty well or you know making good progress with me and I'm thinking mom still may not be hearing very many words at home and so I'm thinking, well, now it's finally going to come on in because he's gotten to that part where he's noisy all the time, which is something you want to listen for. And, again, I think that that 
that's a pretty common way to hear parents talk about jargon in children that we've had with significant expressive language delays and significant speech issues because in my mind, too, they're going back and picking up all that vocal play that they, they didn't do as babies. So, th again, that falls more in the typical range. But there are some times when we hear jargon with children that re really the jargon is more of a red flag. And that would be when a child is over two and we're hearing only jargon and we're not really seeing any other real words or intelligible word attempts happen at any other time. And again, sometimes the parent will say or think a child is really talking and that there are just so many speech sound issues that, you know, he's really, you know, telling you a long, complicated story. And if we could just fix all the sounds and just get all the consonants in the right places, that it would make sense. And, you know, and so they misinterpret what jargon is. And so when we're hearing jargon with a child like that, when there are no intelligible words and he's over two, that's a big, big red flag. And so to me, the, the two pieces of information there that are critical for us to think about as therapists would be how old is the kid and are we hearing any other, any other things that we could classify as a word attempt or a word um, approximation. And so we, I've had children on my caseload, not very many, thank you, God, but that who didn't really try any words, just everything they said was that long string of jargon. And that is, that is really frustrating when that happens because you know this kid can talk, but you don't really hear any instances of um, those single word annotations. And so when that's happening, you don't work on phrases, you don't work on articulation. Most of the time, if we trace that back, it's not even really rooted in an expressive problem. It's really a receptive language problem, and a lot of those kids are not linking meanings with words. They're not following very many commands. They're not able to identify objects when you say, you know, where's the ball, where's the book, go get your truck, find your shoes. They can't do any of that. They're just doing their thing. And they may even be looking at you or seeming as if they're responding to you, but there's no real indication that they are understanding language. And again, thank goodness we don't see a ton of those kids with that particular thing when they're when they're somewhat socially connected, but all they're using is that jargon. Have you had a ton of those kids, Kate? No, a, a spattering over the years, but it's not too common. I mean, they're out there, but they're, they're yeah, typically yeah. that's not the standard. Right. And those kids, I think about them as auditory processing kids, and we look at them in early intervention as receptive language kids. And with those kinds of kids, when we focus on receptive language and really get them understanding and making those connections with single words, and quit trying to decipher their speech and quit trying to think that they're talking in sentences and look at it as, oh my goodness, I'm going to treat this as a pure receptive language issue. Those kids get better because then we focus on the right thing and then we start to see some real word imitations come in. But that would be a, an example of when jargon is a red flag and for when we really worry about it, when it, a kid is over to not using any real single word imitations and when there's also, when there are other signs of receptive language issues. Okay, the other more, um, and this one is more common with kids who are on the spectrum or who go on to be diagnosed uh, with autism. Those are the kids that use jargon, but it is in no way communicative. But parents haven't realized that the jargon isn't um, directed to anybody. And these are kids that use jargon as kind of their self-stimulatory thing. 
they seem like they're talking but only to themselves because they're not really directing that to anyone. They're not doing it in response to a question. They're not coming up to you and telling you something like that. They're they're vocalizing, again, using that jargon, but only in their own isolated um, play or event or whatever. It's play might be too strong of a word there. But again, it's it, they're vocalizing, but it's not communicative. Can you word that a better way, Kate? Well, I you don't know, know what I'm trying better. to say. Yes, I yeah. do. I, I guess sometimes I point out uh, in these instances, and I'm not sure this is the right thing to say, but I have pointed this out. And the point is that th- this that child you're describing doesn't really care if you're there to hear it or not. They're not really saying it to you. They would say it whether you were there or not, whether the parent was there or not. It's like their own private little conversation, and you could be there or not be there, And they, as opposed to the kid who is looking at you, who is, even if it doesn't have any meaning, shared meaning, you know they are trying to tell you something, you know. It's still interactive, yeah. Right, because they're they're looking looking at you, you. because they're holding your attention, because they're, you know, there's, there's some reciprocal something going on, some joint attention, and they establish it. So you know on some level they get communication. Then there's the next kid, the one you just described, who really, they're making noises, but they don't care if anybody's there. They don't even really notice. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if we were really classifying that and looking at how they're using their language Again, this is a professional way to put it, but it's self-simulatory. They're just doing it because on some level it makes them feel good, you know, and we don't know if that feedback it could be they like hearing it, they like how their little mouth moves when they say it. You know, who knows the, we can't always pinpoint what particular enjoyment or feedback the child is getting from his jargon when he's doing it, but really it's, Self-stimulatory. Now, some of our kids like that. When they do start to get more words and we've worked with them, those are the kids in my mind that become echolalic. Would you reach that same conclusion? When those, sometimes when those kids get better. Yeah, I'm not sure I ever made minded. that connection, but it kind of makes sense. Yeah. I think it is. And I've even thought before to some kids, not that I would ever really say this, but thought if I can just get this kid to be echoing. <laughs> you know, because I think, okay, boy, he knows. He can sequence sounds. He can put his what together long strings of words. And so in my mind, I'll think, gosh, you know, we've got to get some real words in there even if that starts out a like a lick, because then at least it's recognizable and it's headed in the right direction with using real words to communicate with people, even if it's not entirely communicated before. And we've talked about echolalia even recently on the show. I'm not going to talk about that now. I'm just saying from my own personal experience, that's kind of where some of those kids in my mind would be headed when they start to... Um, get some more words is that we might some of those some of the things that we hear them say might be a little echolalic and again the silver lining there is at least he's talking <laughs> he's headed again headed toward learning how to communicate um because those words sound real and we can understand them we just got to direct it so that he understands that language is social and to be shared not uh, something that you do by yourself. So I wanted to share that, though, about jargon, and that's when another situation that I think we hear a lot as um, therapists who work in early intervention is a parent who says, you know, you'll say, are you concerned because he's not talking? And she, they'll say something like, no, he's talking a lot. If I could just only understand what he's saying... And then you'll expect to hear some jargon or see some jargon that that might be communicative, like we've talked about. But then you realize, oh gosh, this is in no way uh, what I expected based on what Mom said, because it's all pretty self-directed. So that's a situation too that we would worry about jargon. And how do you treat those kids 
again, you work on receptive language. The, the first thing you work on with those kids is a social connection, on being with you and playing with you and learning how to interact. And then again, that receptive language component. So they're really linking meaning with words. And they really learn how to um, follow some directions. And again, before you would get there, you would, you would work on that participation and interaction piece. So those are kind of the scenarios that we go through in our mind when we have a kid who's using some jargon and we figure out, okay, does this look like a more typical use of jargon that we would expect to see kind of based on this child's uh, where they are in that whole expressive language continuum? You know, are they just trying to make the jump from using single words to phrases or phrases to conversation or is this something, has he been in just really, really a kid who didn't make a peep, who wasn't noisy at all, and this is just his kind of practicing phase that we want to hear? Um, or is this a more atypical use of jargon where even though it's communicative, he's looking at me, he's trying to talk, but there's still some huge gaps in his receptive language, or the last case that we just talked about, a kid who's using jargon um, in a real non-communicative way or self-stimulatory. He's just vocalizing because he can and it's not directed toward anyone and so he really has to get that social piece in place and the receptive piece in place before we can ever hope for words to be meaningful for him. So I don't know if we've ever characterized jargon. We've talked about it a lot but I don't know that I've ever kind of laid it out like that in typical um, scenarios when we could expect it and think about it as a positive versus uses of jargon when we might be a little more concerned and where it's really more of a red flag. I wanted to put that out there today. Well, let me ask you this, Laura. What was your read exactly? Because I'm not so sure that I have ever... Um, worked with a child who was as verbal as the child she described, four to five word sentences or phrases or whatever, and still using jargon. What See, was your I really reason? haven't either. And so okay. I gave her all of these scenarios. And had her, tried to get her to figure out what what right. it might be. Yeah. Right. And she certainly is not a kid who's probably not using language in a self-stimulatory way. I hope that they would have figured that out. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So it didn't sound to me like she was that situation. I was just trying to give her these various scenarios so she could yeah. see kind of where that We're fits. trying to get her to figure out, since she has the advantage of actually seeing the oh. child, which cat, which one of these... And it would, you know, always, no matter kind of what our general topic of the moment is, it always seems for us anyway to come down to how are they socially? How are their receptive right. skills? You know, you got to kind of know those right. things because those are going to tell you what is this jargon, what does it mean for this specific kid. And since she didn't really give us that information and we don't know the child, you know, but I just, Reading it, I thought, I don't think I've ever worked with a child who was that verbal who was still using jargon. Right. At least, and so it could, it so could be yeah. something's up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is not something we, this is not a scenario that we hear mm -hmm. or that we encounter or that we even have a clear answer for. Mm -hmm. And so my advice to her is anytime you have a kid this old that's seemingly doing pretty well with the I would really question how she's truly processing language. And so I would treat her like a receptive language kid or an auditory processing kid, language processing, whatever you want to call it, and really do some pretty involved teasing a part of her skills to see if there aren't some underlying receptive language issues going on. That would be my gut feeling about her. I have a little girl on my caseload that I follow who who's turned four already, and again, that's old for me, who is on the spectrum, really high functioning, 
and her mom until recently reported some episodes of jargon, but it was always when she was, it was during downtime, like in the bathtub or um, she might she would say when she was in her room by herself or, you know, doing something where I felt like she was just using that to fill the void, you know, and again, probably leaning towards self-stimulatory stuff at that point. You know, is it practicing? I don't know. If she was, you know, using some real words in there probably, and this is a little girl too who has a pretty... Um, strong history of echolalia, so I'm sure that that jargon kind of interspersed with her scripts from various shows mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. she was doing, and so that would be what that would be my feeling with this little girl is that there are some underlying receptive kinds of issues, and again, that may not be something that um, she, the therapist, has really thought about, but that's kind of an unusual presentation. You read. This that she's doing four and five word sentences, and most people would say, "Discharge, you know, congratulations, you are good to go." And so that was something else that she was asking about: should she discharge her yet? And I said, "No, because I think there's some things going on. You've got a few more months with her. There's dig a little deeper and make sure she doesn't just get passed off when there's still some issues that need to be addressed." And we really haven't heard back from her to hear if she's come to any conclusions about the nature of the jargon, right? That was just initial question. This is what she said. She said, I hear jargon minimally in sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, she said, if I heard it more, it was when she was talking, if it's holding a conversation with somebody. So, again, that would tell me she's just got some vocabulary um, gaps that they need to fill in. And it sounds like to me, too, that she's trying to make that jump to speaking sentences or paragraphs all the right. time. So she's just trying to hold her place in, in that turn-taking back and forth so that the person knows, hey, I'm still interested in talking to you, and I, I need you to stand here while I figure out what I'm going to say. So that's how it seemed to me. Right. And she did say that she was going to talk to her parents, the parents some more dig a little deeper. We haven't heard anything other than that, other than minimally while she's in session, so that would tell me, too, that when she's got something going on back and forth and when somebody's really tuned in, she probably doesn't use it very much because she doesn't have to. Mm-hmm. So, that's my And I, I have kids, a fair number of kids who who do that. They really don't use it with me much. Right. But they'll use it in other situations, but I always think they, you know, it's well. One, we're feeding them the words, and there's, you know, there's this unwritten right. script that they that we want them to learn, right. and they it's how working. Their, yeah, they're learning yeah. it. Um, but they all, I also kind of think they know that's not going to fly. You know what I mean? Like, mm-mm, she expects real words. I can't just do my little jargon thing and get by with it. But then I'll hear them go off, or I'll talk to mom for a while, and then I'll hear some, and I think that's funny. You never really used that with me, but you have it. I know, and I always think it's because we were really engaged in really doing the vocabulary there, and I would have, I would have given them or cued them if I thought they were struggling in a way. So there's no reason for them to use the right. jargon when they're in session because they don't, you know, there's just no reason they don't have to. So that's always right. interesting to look at because if they're using jargon to kind of, if it's really directed toward a person or it's self-directed. And right. And the self-directed is where I would start to, even if they're like my, my little gal that's doing so well, incredibly well now, you know, to hear her mom talk about that, I'm glad her mom told me because it's not something that I ever hear in a session or have heard for a long time. So it's good information. And I think when we hear those things, we don't need to dismiss it. We need to think, oh, this kid may look her best hour of the week maybe when she's with me. And right. so I can't just take how she's functioning in the course of the speech therapy session and think that she's generalized it and she's doing it. And I'll tell you, that is something that I have to regularly remind myself of, is right. that this kid's very best thing really might be here and we might still have a long way to go before <sighs> they're ready to be discharged, and that's something that, again, I still have to, even after doing this job for so long, and even after telling other people how to do this job, 
is still something I have to really, really remind myself about. Because kids do kind of get what you want them to do, and we have some little friends that are great at performing for you, and then um, they, again, may not be able to do it when they don't have that level of cueing and that level of uh, that adult who's hyper-focused on what they're doing enough to... And really kind of a, a script, a routine for yeah. it. You know, they right. they do learn it, which is what we want them right. to do. But, yeah, right. in, in real life they might not be able to apply the script so well. Exactly. And then, you know, you've still got some work to do. All right, here's the end of our hour. I could talk about this, oh, for a long time, but we're just going to have to call it a day. Okay. All right. Thanks so much. If you have a question for us that you'd like to hear on the podcast, email me, laura at teachmetotalk.com. Thanks so much. Talk to you next week. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye.